Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Celebrating the Saints, All Saints Day. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 2nd, 2008. This week, Christians observe All Saints Day on November 1st, the day after Halloween. But they do so in different ways and for different reasons. During its first 300 years, the church suffered widespread persecutions, and so Christians celebrated their leaders, their heroes, and especially the martyrs of the faith. Literature of the fourth century indicates that churches honored saints in their liturgies. Churches were named after saints. Relics were collected and honored. The dates of their death were commemorated, and special communion services were held at their tombs. In fact, churches were even built on those tombs. The church eventually concluded that all believers who had died, and not just famous saints, should rightly be commemorated. For Catholics, All Saints Day took final form in the year 835, when Pope Gregory IV ordered the Feast of All Saints to be universally observed on November the 1st. Eastern Orthodox Christians observe All Saints Day on the first Sunday after Pentecost. And then there are Protestants. Protestants get positively nervous about celebrating the saints anytime. <clears throat> Protestants cringe at the superstitions that eventually developed across the centuries. In Martin Luther's Wittenberg, for example, Prince Frederick the Wise had an extraordinary cache of sacred relics. An illustrated catalog by Lucas Cranach in 1509, for example, listed 5,005 articles. A tooth from Jerome, three pieces of Mary's cloak, a piece of gold from the three wise men, a piece of bread from the Lord's Supper, a strand from Jesus' beard, and on and on it went. By 1520, says the scholar Roland Bainton, the collection of holy bones had grown to 19,013. These vulgar distortions of the gospel made Martin Luther's blood boil. What lies there are about relics, he raged. One claims to have a feather from the wing of the angel Gabriel, and the bishop of Mainz has a twig from Moses' burning bush. And how does it happen that 18 apostles are buried in Germany when Christ had only 12? Most galling of all, the church displayed these relics on All Saints Day. And, surprise, surprise, for the proper financial contribution the Pope would reduce your time in purgatory up to 1,902,202 years and 72 days. Of course, we rightly repudiate these flagrant abuses. Protestants also get nervous about blurring the boundary between honoring the saints and worshiping them, praying to them for protection, kissing icons of them, in treating them as mediators to God, or even co-redeemers with Christ. 
Protestants therefore emphasize a distinction that both Catholics and Orthodox acknowledge, at least in theory, if not in popular practice, that Christians honor or venerate the saints, but we don't worship them. Worship is due to God alone. Protestants also disagree about the definition of a saint. Catholics use the word saint in a very narrow and technical sense. Saints are Christians whose lives have been characterized by extraordinary holiness, heroic virtue, and the performance of miracles. Only the Pope may canonize a believer as a saint. And that, in fact, is a complicated process. <clears throat> the first step to sainthood is called beatification, for which there are three criteria. Theological soundness, extreme holiness, and the performance of two miracles. If the Pope verifies all of that, the person is then honored as blessed so-and-so. But, to be canonized as a saint, the believer must also be credited with two additional miracles. Whereas the beatified receive only local recognition, a saint is venerated worldwide. Whereas believers are permitted to venerate the beatified, veneration of a saint is mandated. And finally, the Pope's act of canonizing a saint is declared to be an infallible act, meaning that Catholics can be assured that the saint is worthy to be venerated and imitated, and most importantly, that the saint can intercede for the believer. <clears throat> All this is way too complicated for Protestants. It's also discouraging. I'll never be a saint. When Pope John Paul II canonized Latin America's first indigenous saint, Juan Diego, a Natal Indian who converted to Catholicism in the early 16th century, I resonated with the remarks I read in the newspaper by a retired bus driver named Bernardo Gomez. He complained that canonizing Diego actually distanced him from ordinary believers for they had loved him as a humble peasant person just like them, not someone famous and highly exalted to sainthood. Juan Diego was an ordinary man chosen by the Virgin to be her messenger, said Gomez. That's what he did. Protestants resonate with Gomez. They maintain that all believers not just a famous few superstars are, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, called to be saints. We prefer the plural, saints, which includes all Christians, as, in we, as when we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the communion of saints. On the other hand, we're opposed to the singular, saint, which, which suggests some exalted status. Paul, for example, addressed his letters to quote-unquote all the saints when he wrote to Rome, Ephesus, and Philippi. So, in this Protestant view, I'm a saint, 
not because of my heroic deeds, my virtuous character, or my performance of miracles, but rather because God calls me to himself in a lifelong pilgrimage. <clears throat> the Protestants shouldn't overreact and throw out the baby with the bathwater. We shouldn't dismiss a practice just because it's abused. Protestants could do a better job of honoring the role that saints can play in our Christian lives, especially for us who, when stressing the personal nature of salvation, often slide into, into individualistic, privatistic, and even narcissistic patterns of discipleship. We should see ourselves in the greater communal identity of all God's people. There's a social and corporate dimension to our journey with Jesus that should include the saints. <clears throat> when I think about the saints, whether the especially holy like Mother Teresa or the egregiously fallen like Jimmy Swaggart, I'm reminded that I have choices to make in my Christian life and that my choices matter. These choices have consequences for my spiritual welfare. And so believers are told to imitate not only Christ, but the saints. Paul urged his readers to imitate his way of life several times. For example, 1 Corinthians 4.16. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12 commands us to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Other saints, by the choices they made, have shipwrecked their faith, 1 Timothy 1.19, and I do well to consider them too. In addition to imitation, there is consolation. The saints console me that I'm not alone. Rather, I'm surrounded by what Hebrews 12.1 calls a great cloud of witnesses who cheer me on to run with endurance the race that is set before me. Wherever I find myself on the Christian pilgrimage, in joy or despair, faith or doubt, sin or grace, millions of believers have gone before me. Some have failed miserably, others have triumphed gloriously. But at the end of the race, whether they ran well or poorly, they found ultimate rest in God's grace that knows no boundaries and his love which knows no limits. So I say, celebrate the saints. We need both the Catholic and Protestant ideas of sainthood. The Catholic view challenges and inspires us. The Protestant view offers consolation and encouragement for all the normal struggles of life. Find a fellow saint and share your own journey with Jesus, encouraging one another to love and good works. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 For books this week, I review Philippe Sands, Torture Team, 
Rumsfeld's Memo and the Betrayal of American Values, New York, Palgrave, 2008, 254 pages. In November 2001, al Mohammed was captured in Afghanistan and sent to the American detention facility in Guantanamo, Cuba. About a year later, it was discovered that he had likely been an additional hijacker for the 9-11 terrorist attacks and a member of al-Qaeda, and as a consequence he was placed in isolation for 160 days. During that time, he was subjected to aggressive interrogation techniques 20 hours a day for 54 straight days. His interrogation logs, in fact, were published by Time magazine on March the 3rd, 2006, and Sand sprinkles excerpts of those throughout his book. Al-Qahtani was not charged with any crimes for six whole years not until February the 11th, 2008. And those charges were dropped by the Pentagon on May the 12th, 2008. <clears throat> Philippe Sands teaches at the University College London. He's a leading expert in international law and participated in the torture cases of Pinochet and Charles Taylor. His most recent book is meticulous in detail, exhaustive in research, fair-minded in letting all the protagonists explain their versions of the story, cautious in his language, surprisingly suspenseful given the arcane and complex nature of the subject, and, more than anything else, devastating in its conclusions. Sands believes that Al-Qahtani's treatment amounted to torture and that those who were responsible for his treatment are guilty of war crimes in light of the Geneva Conventions, Article 3, and the 1984 Torture Convention. Of course, in the world of real politics, they will not be prosecuted here in America, but Sands is deadly serious in his sober advice to the Bush lawyers, William Haynes, Doug Fife, David Addington, Alberto Gonzalez, John Yu, and Jay Bybee, those who provided legal rationalizations for torture. Be very careful about traveling overseas. Sands draws other conclusions. The decision to torture Al-Qahtani did not bubble up from the bottom at Guantanamo, as the Bush administration at first claimed, but was explicitly directed by Rumsfeld's office in his now infamous torture memo that included 18 interrogation techniques. Rumsfeld's office in his now infamous torture memo did not begin at Guantanamo. In fact, it clearly migrated to Abu Ghraib. Torture is always immoral in principle. Experts suggest that it produces unreliable results, and that, and that proved to be the case with Al-Qahtani, since no meaningful intelligence was ever gathered from him. 
His treatment, Sands believes, was a betrayal of American values and of long-standing military practice. He put American soldiers at risk and undermined Americans' reputation abroad. But the Bush administration argued that the extraordinary times required extraordinary measures, that there were palpable fears of further attacks back then, and so they sought the legal fig leaf to cover what they intended to do no matter what. As with the run-up to the Iraq War, normal processes were subverted. <clears throat> In his acknowledgment, Sands pays special tribute to the career military lawyers whom he encountered. A list of principal characters and a chronology of events supplement his narrative. This book, Torture Team, has earned high reviews and is often mentioned in conjunction with another book called The Dark Side, inside, the inside story of how the war on terror turned into a war on American ideals by Jane Mayer, 2008. Philippe Sands, Torture Team. <coughs> For film this week, We've posted a film in conjunction with All Saints Day. The title is called An Uncommon Kindness, from 2003. Narrated by Robin Williams, this 60-minute film tells the story of the Flemish priest Damien de Voister, better known as Father Damien who followed God's call to serve the leper colony on the Hawaiian island of Molokai. Beginning in 1866, the government segregated lepers to the barren island of Molokai, where they were abandoned, quite literally, to hostile, isolated, and horribly primitive conditions, with no housing or even any potable water. In 1873, at the age of 33, Father Damien arrived to serve the 600 dispossessed people. Passionate, driven, and the object of baseless criticisms from Protestants, Father Damien provided for the material needs of the people, housing, food, and medical care, as well as their spiritual needs. He even built their coffins and dug their graves. Sixteen years later, in 1889, he died there of leprosy. In 1995, Pope John Paul declared Father Damien blessed, that is, he beatified him, which is the second of three stages to canonization as a saint. An Uncommon Kindness, from the year 2003, the story of Father Damien. <clears throat> and finally, for poetry for All Saints Day, we've posted a hymn, a favorite hymn of mine, by William Howe. It's called For All the Saints, from 1864. For all the saints who from their labor rest, who thee by faith, before the world confessed, 
Thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia. O blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine. Yet all are one in thee, for all are thine. Alleluia. And when the fight is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant trump triumph song, and hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. Alleluia. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, steams in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. For All the Saints by William Howe, 1864. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 2nd, celebrating All Saints Day, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.